This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello, hello, this is uh, Arjun here, and I'm here with my good what? Oh. <laughs> I was gonna say my good wife, my good friend, but I was just like it's my wife, my good wife. So, uh, you know what? Let's keep that in there. Let's okay. let's keep that All in right. there. Let's keep going. So, uh, yeah, my my good wife, <laughs> Lee Paliwal, and um, we've got a pretty cool episode here today because there's a number three. Hey, I just noticed the number three, mm-hmm. right? I always use the number three like in everything I do. Have you noticed that? And me too. I think we're like. It's our lucky number. Yeah, I've claimed it as my lucky number as well. <laughs> That's right. So we're, we're talking threes today because we've got three sets of insights beyond our uh, typical finance updates and other data point updates that we've got for all our listeners today. And I'm pretty pumped to go through that together with Lee. Uh, a lot of insights being produced by the Investigate Buyers Agency research team that we'll run through today. Mm-hmm. And uh, also a special shout out is that if you do hang around to the end of the episode, the team and I have been working together on a very, very unique resource, and it's actually all about how we categorize markets. Now, this is going to be the most important thing coming off the back of a huge boom where everything everywhere grew along really well. So what do I mean by categorize markets? It's like, how does the investigate research team put cities in different buckets, things that are earlier in their cycle, hotspotting in their cycle? maybe things that have grown, cooled down, and we think will grow again, what we refer to as second wind markets. So we call them early adopters, hotspots, and second winds. And so after years of you know trying to develop this resource in terms of how we can actually simply explain it to people, we finally come up with a one-pager that can actually simply nice. explain this. So um, I'm keen as a first. It hasn't been – it's nowhere on the internet, no website, nothing. Um, I'm keen to give it away totally free so people can understand how we do this. All you have to do is drop Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A. So that's um, our office manager here at Investigate. It's Nikita at investigate.com.au. Just drop her an email and uh, at the subject line – say, market category or market categorization, anything, and she'll send that through. Now, I just realized I said stay to the end to know what we're going to give away, and I was going to explain how to give away, and I just gave it all away. So, yeah, stop that. You don't need to stay to the end. I'm I'm totally bad at this stuff. Stop listening now. Feel free to do (laughs) it. Yeah, so I was just like, stay stay to the end, and I was hopefully going to make it all secretive so I could tell you how to do it, and then you tune into the end, and then maybe I send it out now and – this shows me who really listens, but that experiment is no longer legit. It's no longer on. I will just give it away. Just please do ask and we will send this to you. So, uh, so that's a market categorization report, one pager. Yeah, correct. Cool. It's essentially you know how we you know strip markets into different buckets and decide on which cycle positioning they're in. And we go through the indicators, the pros and cons and things to look at. And it's a, a pretty cool document. It's also got some interactive charts there. So it helps. So yeah, anyone after that, uh, thank you for firstly being our audience here, tuning in. And speaking of the audience, we actually are trading very close to 200,000 total downloads. Yeah, how exciting. It hasn't even been two years. That's pretty cool, hasn't it? That's fantastic. It is amazing. So I'm very grateful. So it's good to know that there's valuable information that people are, you know, wanting to come back and listen to, which is exciting. 
I reckon it's all you, Lee. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just the finance person. <laughs> don't judge finance. But, um, <laughs> hey, so yeah, the threes. We talked about the threes. We've got three cool topics to jump into today. But before we do, there's obviously lots going on in the finance world. And uh, Lee, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on kind of how the world of finance is tracking, lending's tracking, and just, just run through some data that you're seeing. Yeah, so uh, we're here in October, and last week there was the sixth cash rate increase that was announced. So essentially over the past six months, RBA has increased the cash rate, and now it's at 2.61%, which has come all the way from 0.1% six months ago. Um, So, you know, the first was a 0.25% increase. The next four were 0.5% increases, so we saw quite a rapid you know, 2% increases in total in four months. And and we've uh, seen a little bit of a dial back, which is interesting, of a 0.25% increase for October cash rate. Um, And so I guess that is interesting because does that possibly mean that the RBA believes we're near the end of the uh, cash rate increase cycle? You know, obviously more cash rate increase um, hikes could be certain, with, you know, um, RBA revealing it expects an increase, you know, to continue for its interest rates for the further period ahead. But this could be an indicator that it's, you know, starting to slow down. Well, it makes sense to an extent, right? Because I think I guess there's two things that we think of. Number one is when we think of lending, assessment rates are naturally moving with the interest rate. That's right. That's, Every increase. Yeah. And that's yeah. why you're seeing on your worldly a 25, 20% borrowing capacity reduction. So funnily enough, you know, I actually saw a post of um Tom Panos. Tom Panos did this and he was talking about how people are losing borrowing capacity, that's which exactly I know you've right. got some examples to run through. But on that note, uh, you know, with interest rates rising, it makes sense from the assessment rates. They're now being reaching now reaching those seven, seven point five, eight percent assessment rates. And we're sitting at five or four and a half to sort of six and a half percent consumer rates, which are at those peak of assessment rates of before. Yeah. So any any sort of increases beyond here is kind of saying, hey, two years ago or the last two to three years of mortgages weren't stress tested under these environments. No. Which should be a sign for the RBA to consider that. We need to taper back a little bit. We need to taper back. And we've yeah. actually talked about that in a white paper that mm-hmm. this rate cycle uh, would start to you know fade away. Uh, that was our Australian housing fundamentals. And earlier this year, actually at the start of this year, uh, jumped onto uh, the Weekend Today show, um, and we talked about the interest rate cycle possibly moving into a neutral and or you know contraction again mm-hmm. in 2023. So keep an eye out. That's sort of our thoughts here. And so we've still got three months to go for yeah. the year, but it'll be, I guess my opinion is that I will, will be seeing it, it will taper back, like you said, for the beginning of next year. So, yeah, so that's where we're at. Now, I like to, as you know, cover off the ABS lending indicators for housing finance. And so the August 2022 uh, numbers have come through. So for total housing, um, this fell by 3.4% to $27.4 billion after a fall of 8.5% in July. Um, so that's total housing finance slight fall. And for owner-occupier housing, this fell by 2.7% to $18.5 billion in total. Um, this has remained, though, at 35.8% higher than the pre-pandemic level seen in February 2020. Yeah. 
So I guess that that's clearly showing that lending is toning down pretty quickly, yes. which makes sense, right? You've got borrowing capacity changes, you've got oh, interest rate changes, rapid and sentiment changes. Yeah. So sentiment, interest rates, borrowing which capacity yeah. should all make lending change. Mm-hmm. So naturally, that should be occurring. Yeah. But what was interesting is that it's still, you know, thirty five point eight percent higher than pre pandemic levels. Feb 2020 mm-hmm. clearly shows that you know 35 36% higher for owner occupiers and 69% higher for investors than pre pandemic levels Massive. it's clear that it's still operating at high levels but just not the same as obviously the peak growth rates which is understandable considering monetary and sentiment changes exactly yeah so massive call out for the investor lending like you said uh, nearly 70% higher. What's happening on the refinance front? Because obviously, Lee, I know your team is super busy with refinances these days. And, um, you know, shout out to your team at Hills Finance. They've also been helping many clients of ours at Investikit with regards to refinancing and getting better interest rates. So um, reach out to Lee at, uh, not at Investikit, uh, lee.paliwal at hillsfinance.com.au. But Lee, what's happening on the external refinancing? Because interestingly, people are now more conscious of their their budgets, right, with rate changes? Definitely. Um, and you mentioned about a 20 to 25% decrease, which I'll cover an example of, of how that actually looks like. In terms of ABS data information, total housing rose by, uh, and this is for external refinance lending, uh, total refinances uh, that increased by 5.3%, and this is 9.8% higher compared to a year ago. So it's still on an upwards trend for uh, external refinancing. Um, Owner-occupier housing has rose by 2.8%, and this is a new record high, and that's 12.8 billion um, record. This is 17.5% higher compared to a year ago. Um, And then investor housing that rose 10.9% to 6.1 billion in investor refinancing for the month of August. So slightly lower at 3.5% lower compared to a year ago. So how this ties in and what that actually looks like in a real life example for our, you know, uh, you know, consumers out there looking to get their loans refinanced. Obviously, as rates increase, it is very vital to, you know, consult your mortgage professional about switching your loan to a lower rate because as you come off, lots of clients are coming off their fixed rates, for example, you're reverting just back to a standard rate, which could be like, you know, a good half, nearly a whole percent higher than where it could be now, even after those rate increases, hence you want to get those reviewed. And it's not only from a refinance point of view, though, it's also very important from a borrowing capacity point of view too. Um, So when you look and add up the consecutive increases from the RBA, the average household, um, as we mentioned earlier, their serviceability has decreased approximately 20 to 25% compared to six months ago. That's a big jump. Um, So like 20 to 25% is a big change in borrowing capacity, isn't it? Yeah. And I'll give you an example of how that actually looks like for a, a standard household. So two adults, two kids, let's say a combined income of around 150000 gross before tax. Um, six months ago, you could probably borrow about 995000 okay? And so since these, uh, you know, if we factor in the recent October rate hikes, so six rate hikes in a row, that same family is probably looking at around 800000 borrowing capacity. It's 195k less. That's 20% decrease in borrowing capacity. This is a, this is a great call out because this is real example. Yes real numbers and it's taking into account the change of interest rates on borrowing power 
to me, I see two immediate things, right? Uh, more expensive areas that are going to see certain incomes uh, not borrow the same naturally have a ripple effect and they can either buy less purchase prices in the same area or they would go to different rings, middle, outer, whatever it may be to fill up that borrowing and still make it valuable. So that's kind of one thing I'm I'm seeing. The second thing I'm just realizing with that is that waiting is not in your favor. No. Because if you're waiting, are you hoping for $195,000 cheaper property based on this example of 995 borrowing to 800? No. <laughs> because you know what? Like if you're waiting for prices to drop, so is your borrowing capacity too. So it does mean that for every sort of month of rate rise that occurs that you hold off your buying decision, you're actually now seeing your borrowing capacity work against you. Yeah. And by the basis of 25% in six months, that means that the actual rate of borrowing capacity reduction is outpacing the rate of house price fall because That's there right. is no cities that have dropped 25% over six months. No, it's about a 10 country. to 15% correction max. Yeah, and that's even in more of our stressed cities that have yeah. seen that, um, whereas we actually ran some data, and this is super interesting, and it just shows you the power of uh, national media versus micro markets. We all know that the weighting of data in Australia is dominated by Sydney, Melbourne, and surrounds, and this is because of population concentration. The population of these two cities plus surrounding cities is more than a half of the country. Now, from there, you add up slowing markets across parts of Brisbane and other cities. Then overall, you get to see a two-thirds population concentration. And so this now means that you all of a sudden have a huge amount of borrowing capacity change, finances change, and the capital growth that's changing, it starts to make the whole country look like that's happening. We actually looked at suburb by suburb data and found that more than half of the country, based on a one-month, three-month, or six-month analysis, is actually rising in prices. Um, now, this is obviously different suburbs fall in different areas, but that just shows you that there's still so many areas around the country in Australia still rising in prices, but because of this data weighting of the whole country being you know, put together, naturally people are going to see, hey, prices are falling. So if you're then hoping for prices to fall, even though in almost half in some areas or more than half areas are actually rising in value times against you with a 20 to 25% borrowing capacity reduction. So, so cool to see that example, Lee, because it just points out why waiting is probably your enemy in these circumstances. Yeah. Timeliness is important. And I guess while we're on the topic of, you know, finance, it's also the lender that's important too. For example, and I'm pretty sure we touched base on this a couple of podcasts ago, is if you're getting a pre-approval, making sure the lender that you're getting pre-approved for is in fact going to, you know, once that pre-approval is issued, generally they're valid for approximately 90 days in most cases. But making sure as rate increases get applied, that same assessment rate is being honored for that 90-day period, even if there were rate increases during that approval period as well, um, to protect you. Um, and so you're not going back to the drawing board each time you're looking in the market. You really, it, it, That's a really important point to make sure the budget on the piece of paper is valid for that 90-day period. Yeah, definitely, definitely great call out. And so that's a very, very um, thorough and helpful review on the finances, Lee. So pre appreciate that. And uh, for anyone, you can rewind this back around the core components. And that's 
borrowing capacity, the real life changes, mm-hmm. uh, refinancing is the hot topic. And uh, if you're after some support with refinancing, reach out to Lee's team at Hills Finance. They can most definitely help with that. Experts in very much managing complex portfolios. And lastly, uh, the consideration of finance trends cooling off as a result of obviously the the changes that we've seen in conditions, but still 20 to 35%, depending on investor or owner occupier, Mm. higher finance than pre-pandemic. To simplify that, just to wrap it up, is... Wrap up with the wrap up. Love love it. (laughs) Wrap it up with another wrap up is... Each 0.5 increase was a 5% decrease on your borrowing capacity, right? So the recent increase is a 2.5% decrease on your borrowing capacity, essentially. So each time those cash rate increases are passed on, it just turn that into a percentage. So it's 0.25, it's 2.5% essentially decrease on your borrowing capacity. Makes sense. Thank Mm. you so much. And so we talk about the number three at the start of the session, and I've actually remembered about where I came up with the whole idea of the three thing. So I remember either reading up somewhere or getting some public speaking support. And for anyone who's tuned into previous podcasts or heard about me saying things in threes, what happens is that it if happens you, for everything, by the way, even everything, everything, everything. I mean, everything. what you're going to eat. Yeah. Big time. Big time. So the whole, the whole three thing comes from, Say if someone asks me a question and they go, so Arjun, what are your thoughts on or what do you think that or how do you feel about? I kind of, if I am if I haven't thought about it or studied the answer in detail, but I have some thoughts, but I need to recollect the thoughts. Instead of all the ums and ahs and thinking, I say, well, I've got three ideas or three thoughts here. And then I put myself under mental pressure to come up with three things. And so as I'm going and saying it and recollecting thoughts, I'm also thinking about the next one. And I also call you out when you get stumbled on number two. And I'm like, where's the third one? Yeah, (laughs) now you know so much about it, right? (laughs) But I mean, this is a super helpful tip. So anyone out there who's thinking of any any communication or public speaking or or just just improving that in terms of that, it's helped me a lot by coming up with the number three and just challenging yourself, throw it out there. Someone goes, oh, what are your your thoughts on, um, you know, this? Well, my favorite thoughts, uh, I've got three, three thoughts on this. And it just challenges you mentally to come up with an actual paragraph and on talking points. And also what is your best middle and worst case? That is something you regularly bring up. Yes. This is very relatable to what you guys do in Investigate. What is the best middle and worst case scenarios? Understanding what those three look like. So Always. it's very transferable to many things. So you guys do blog posts quite regularly on the Investigate web, uh, website, right? How often do these come through? So these are, you know, very, very deep pieces of research that we release each week and um, our data team and research team. So myself is the head of research. We've got uh, Anas, our data scientist, uh, Jung, our research analyst, and Larissa, our research associate. We all come together to create content like these research posts that I'm going to share. Obviously, the first document I talked about, which was our market categorization. Again, if you're after that, just remember to email Nikita at investikit.com.au and uh, pop the market categorization in the subject and she'll send you a copy. Just give us some patience of a day or two because last time we get had to give out, we had thousands and a lot of people wow, actually reach out and um, ask for documents. So uh, we'll happily- Well, get... there's 200 subscribers nearly, so there might be- No, 200,000 downloads. So almost 200,000 downloads. Oh, right? wow. So 
not 200 subscribers. 200,000, I meant to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we'd be using a lot of hours. Uh, I know we all have to start somewhere, <laughs> but if we had the 200 subscribers, I'd uh, be using a lot of time to uh, do all that. So from that perspective, yeah, we we put out these weekly blogs and, you know, we have we have a, a keen community of over 10,000 just who follow mm-hmm. us on emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and we send out these blogs each week. And I've got three in particular that I wanted to share some detailed data on today. Well, there's one that I'm firstly most excited about, and that's it's something that you've kind of come in when you started off in Vesicate, you were really, really focusing on in terms of locations to buy in. And it's actually really, really interesting. So over 85% of Australian population live within 50 kilometers of the coastline. And so obviously there's a very limited number of seaside cities because of that, right? And so Arjun, you and your team at Investigate, you dived into some data that actually shows that many Australian inland cities are actually the outperformers and still the outperformers in the property market. Um, I think what year was it when you started buying in, for example, Ballarat? Yeah, so that was a... I guess well, yeah. pre- well before COVID, right? Ballarat, Bendigo, um, regional Tasmania, uh, regional New South Wales parts. Like we didn't come into these cities for our clients at COVID because regional was cool. Um, we saw these local economies and the data standing out uh, well before COVID. Yes, eighteen, seventeen, nineteen. That's so, right. Uh, definitely have some science around you know the whole inland water view, sea scarcity, thinking that. Uh, people have and can bust a few myths on this session. That's right. And so that most recent blog post from you guys is the three outperform uh, outperforming inland cities which have no water view or sea scarcity. That is, you've actually named the top three locations in there. So let's go through that. Yeah. So I guess this research firstly isn't to kind of rule out that you don't go to, don't buy in seaside cities or anything. That's that's mm-hmm. a silly, silly thought if anyone's reading this and thinking that the idea of this research is to respectfully challenge the thinking of, Oh, by the beach near the water, by the ocean, has it got views as these must have lists for buying to achieve capital growth? Mm-hmm. It's not the case at all. And so the highlight here is to basically say, Hey, look, there are some inland cities that have really done well. And it's about dissecting the fact that they didn't have water views seaside scarcity by the ocean or beaches, and yet they performed really well. And this is something that we've time and time again found locations that do that, and they offer affordable options to buy property in. And so these three cities that stood out were Toowoomba, Ballarat, and Orange. Now, these are talking about their recent performances, so it doesn't mean by any chance that, okay, by any means that we're saying that these are the must-buy locations, but this is proof and truly proving out to anyone out there that you don't need to be by the ocean to see capital growth. So that was kind of the the first first core concepts. Now, firstly, let's see where they are. Right? Well, you know they're over two hundred kilometers away from the New South Wales or Sydney coastline. When you think of Orange as an example, but uh, with Orange, just over the last two years, sixty percent house price growth has occurred. Now, this is important because. Yes, we can talk about a property boom occurring, but Orange has seen higher performance than many, many major cities over those two years. It's outperformed the likes of Sydney and Melbourne just in those two years by 60%. And even just over the recent five years, to be honest, they've outperformed many cities or most cities across the country. Now, with regards to Ballarat, Ballarat's also done phenomenally. It's the uh, third largest city in Victoria, 
and house prices have risen 45% over the last two years. And even more than when you add the three, four, five years uh, go, since when we first started purchasing in Ballarat. You know, some of Greater Melbourne's seaside regions have moved around that sort of 30% and uh, over the two-year average. And, you know, some of the regional Vic seaside areas have moved on average of around 48% over the same two-year period. So Ballarat, as an example, inland has still done really, really well, even though it's nowhere near the beach or the ocean or anything like that. And it's things like this just to consider that you don't have to have all that to see capital growth. Lastly, we had Toowoomba. So Toowoomba is also another, what, 150 plus kilometers away from the coastline. It's uh, Australia's second largest inland city. I actually try to purchase there many times personally for uh, our portfolio this year, and we just kept missing out. Uh, so unfortunately, that was a miss there. But uh, we definitely ended up in Townsville. Townsville and Bundaberg were the yeah. ones that we ended up getting some properties in. But uh, Toowoomba has been a great market. We obviously purchased there for many clients over the last couple of years, and they've performed extremely well. And uh, even over the last six months, whilst we've been talking about price declines, borrowing capacity declines, and even declines in terms of uh, house prices in some of our major areas, uh, and interest rate rises, sorry, Toowoomba still averaged most suburbs 1% or more per month capital growth over the last six. That is genuinely a huge property boom still continuing. So it just shows that people over the last six months who had been maybe confused or clouded with some of the thinking on interest rates, borrowing capacity mm -hmm. changes, you've still seen some great capital growth in Toowoomba. But it's not about the last six months. It's about showing that, you know, in, in history, we've seen many cases like these three cities of inland cities still outperforming. So, yeah, that's kind of been a big, big key part. Yeah. And I guess the main question then is what is making these areas perform so well? What are the key indicators? Yeah, it's a great question, Lee. So, firstly, the local economy. And this is funny when people think of local economies, they think of skyscrapers, they think of everyone in suit and ties and dresses and everything running around, you know, everything like that does not mean a local economy is, is strong. Uh, that is just a representation and a visual sense of what we think when we're having economy. Uh, just take a look at these three cities. We're going to talk about some of the projects, right? Now, if we're talking about some of the projects under construction or even in the pipeline, uh, we have a database that we uh, you know, access and it has all of Australia's you know, constantly rolling applications of infrastructure and currently in progress or in proposed. And we felt when we reviewed this, there were some huge projects. So just to give you some context, Toowoomba has... 276 projects in the areas of influence to its local house market. And that represents over $13.3 billion in project value. And this is just the construction or in pipeline stages. Now we've got Ballarat. Just with, for Toowoomba. Yeah, just for Toowoomba <laughs> alone, right? We've got Ballarat having over 5 billion, Orange over 5 billion. Now this doesn't talk about the projects that they had back then or when they saw this growth, but it just shows you that their local economies are still very, very active, especially when we use data also to divide things on a per capita perspective. Mm. We're able to see, yes, it might be small spend in comparison to Sydney, but could it be big spend in comparison to how many mm. people are in that representative city? Unemployment for all of these markets are extremely low. And that's been a big sign as a result of all the job advertisements increasing. Uh, Toowoomba's 
unemployment is still healthy. Although it had a little bit of trend up over recent quarters, it's still healthy. And Ballarat, Orange, everything in Ballarat and Orange is actually below Australia's current trend line. So it just showcases that they have strong local economies. I think that um, you're going to go obviously into the next point, but I had a look at the report and I think the key standout, like any of these regional areas, is definitely the affordability. Like the median house prices for these areas, Orange, 665K. Um, then we've got Toowoomba, 495K. And then Ballarat, 580K. Yeah. That's it, a big difference from your major cities. Good call out, Lee, because the affordability is a piece there, right? And people talk about, yeah, well, affordable and incomes, the incomes are lower. Yeah, they are. And so should house prices, right? And they are affordable. Uh, we looked at some seaside, you know, if we if we take a look at um, Kayama and Port Stevens, they have, you know, local incomes versus local prices and 9.8 and a 10.9 respective house price to household income ratio. Whereas when you took it, look at Orange, it's 7.7, Ballarat 7.8, Toowoomba 6.3. So, you know, when you we compare this to Brisbane, Queensland, Melbourne, Victoria, major cities, Sydney, New South Wales, these cities carry lower house price to household income ratios. And just affordability is definitely a core attraction for many people considering it. Now, the other thing, Lee, is that uh, alongside affordability, housing inventory is a core part of what causes capital growth. Mm-hmm. Price growth is always you know, determined by supply and demand. Now, supply and demand is easy to say. We obviously look at many indicators behind the scenes. But the key thing here is that housing inventory has constantly trended down for markets like Orange uh, and Toowoomba. Mm-hmm. Toowoomba very much so over recent years, yeah. uh, 2020 to 2022. Orange housing inventory has been trending down actually since 2012, 2013, but rarely started getting low around 2016, heading into 18. So that sort of 18 was when inventory started to get quite low. And that's where the biggest capital growth started from your 2018 onwards in in Orange. As for Ballarat, it's actually been quite a good market, quite balanced over the, the recent decade, but the lowest level of inventory started around 2018 and 19. It did pick up a little bit when COVID first hit at 2020, but then rocketed down. And so inventory for those wondering, just a very simple metric, it's the number of sales per month on average uh, divided by current levels of stock. So 30 listings in an area, say in Ballarat, and there's 10 sales per month on average that occur mean three months of stock. And that sort of three, three and a half months of stock is a balanced level of of inventory. And as it continues to trend down, housing becomes more undersupplied because there's less stock versus what sells. What's an extreme example of an unbalanced market? Yeah, so an unbalanced market could be anything sort of that 1.5 months and below of inventory, which many Mm. locations are at the moment. Um, That just shows that the demand is far better than supply. Mm. Obviously, this is available supply and deals happening. That is a core measure, but... Uh, it doesn't represent all the other conditions of sentiment, economy, and everything. It's more just like the end outcome of everything on the top end that feeds into that data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hence why it's such a reliable metric for short-term capital growth. Now, that's kind of uh, the core first point of the three, Lee, which was mm-hmm. all about um, you know the, the fact that you don't have to just sit down and think of all the beachside or seaside locations to buy property. Mm-hmm. If your budget doesn't permit those areas, or if you're still looking to get ahead and grow wealth, 
You know, there are many cases of inland cities out there that have performed well. These three I shared are just examples of their performance in recent times that clearly outperform many seaside areas, not all, but put you in the realm of getting into property investing at affordable buy-ins in their site. And just to relate that back to whole finance and borrowing capacities that we were talking about, if we were talking about those three locations and the max kind of average purchase price is around 670k or below, I mean, again, if you've had that 20% reduction in your borrowing capacity, you might have been looking at in, you know, Sydney, CBD, Melbourne, you know, your major CBDs for purchases, while perhaps you need to reconsider and look in some other more, more affordable areas that suit your budget, which there are that just proves that that's the case, which is exciting. Cool. All right. Well, the next blog post that we wanted to go through, and this is very in line with obviously the whole mythology and process behind Vesticit is due diligence. Why is it important and what do you cover off? Um, so yeah, let's go straight into that. Yeah, due diligence is a great, great point, Lee. And this is the the key where you start to recognize professional versus beginner buying. Yeah. Right. Now there are many areas of due diligence and there's three core categories. You see the threes back again, right? With back vengeance. Again. Um, number one was finance. How much borrowing capacity do you have? Can you afford your loan repayments if interest rates rise? Um, financial due diligence around, you know, just making your life easier with loan repayments in case of increasing interest rates, mm-hmm. like your household budgets. Uh, but finance really isn't just even how much you can borrow. It's actually also setting standards for your purchase, like maximum price ranges, minimum yield levels, um, you know, things that you'd like to see from a rental growth that you're trying to target. Is the rent covering the repayments, that kind of stuff? Yeah, whether it is or isn't doesn't mean it has to, but it's more yeah. like you're planning and thinking around how this all happens and yes. the potential of changing uh, monetary environments like interest rates. So really that due diligence starts with your household finances, then mm-hmm. goes towards banks and unforeseen circumstances. Uh, moving to the second, it's actually market due diligence. And this is where people forget. They think it's just about buying a house with certain things that it has versus it doesn't have. And that's due diligence. Market due diligence is around, is the local economy doing well? Does the property market have great growth potential based on certain indicators? Is the rental demand high? It's unreal how many people don't think of that. The rental demand being high is one of the most important things because it shows you real demand. And then lastly, market due diligence is all about adding more certainty to the likeliness of property having capital growth in your portfolio. Remember, which we all want. That's what we're all after. So conduct that due diligence. A bit of cash flow or a bit of, you know, the the rent to cover the loan repayments and costs, but definitely the uh, capital growth at the end of the day. Exactly. Now, those are the two core parts of property market selection and finance. But when we come to property purchasing, there's a whole range of due diligence here. And uh, we actually finished one of our biggest due diligence projects recently. Now, uh, that was very, very, very deep and intense. And it was done by our property acquisitions team. So AJ, who's been with me since Investigate first started, he's our head of acquisitions, uh, you know, has his Bachelor of Development, Valuation and Investment, um, being part of our acquisitions team, facilitating, reviewing, conducting due diligence on many purchases. You know, imagine just all the different checks that you have to have that a typical buyer doesn't think of. These checks did not come out of thin air, mm. right? They came out of a, a science, just like we do for growth analysis. We have a science applied to due diligence. 
Now, to simplify the science as much as possible, we're there's looking more at, than three. In yeah, this there's definitely more than three, <laughs> three in this part. But to simplify the science as much as possible, Lee, it's all about what are the core things in property that will make a property take longer to sell or discount more. And they're usually quite connected Mm -hmm. because just imagine for a moment, you're out there looking to sell your home and it takes far longer to sell than normal. You usually respond in one of two ways. Either you're super stubborn, you reckon you can still get that money and you need a better agent to do it and you just want to get on with life but not discount money or you do what most do, which is discount property. And this is why days on market is such a core analysis piece of our due diligence. And so is vendor discounting. So we start to look at those two trends. If they show peak and volatility when these due diligence points are applied versus when they're not. So let me just throw out a few floods, bushfire. No one wants to be in a flood zone or bush area. Flood flood impact is much more important. So uh, large scale new developments. Mm Uh, distance to busy roads or on busy roads, train tracks nearby, major power lines and power stations. Cemeteries, obviously. Cemeteries and industrial sites, land sizes, minimum versus you know larger blocks, structural issues, obviously, from post-piston building. These th- sorts of things all come together. Uh, being on a road with a roundabout mm-hmm. directly near your property having a bus stop right in front of your house versus away from it. Mm-hmm. All these things are, are key things in review. And we were able to make a science out of this. And by science, I mean. Literally. It's we like were, the ingredients to a cake, right? It's yeah. Like you can't bake a cake properly without the right ingredients. So. Definitely. And, and the key thing is we just want to avoid resale scenarios where possible that have a longer days on market and in turn higher chances of vendor discounting. The areas can still grow great. You've got your area selection right, but these little checks can be helpful. And so these areas, these things that I mentioned are proven things that can create, you know, heightened days on market. And that was done through the science component, which I mentioned, which is uh, hundreds and hundreds of properties on each due diligence item, Mm -hmm. uh, creating control groups, creating group A of impact, you know, group B having multiple impacts, group A having only that particular due diligence impact, uh, hot periods of markets, cold periods of markets. So we're able to review this in multiple ways. And some of those things I mentioned will increase days on market yeah, and will increase chances of discounting. Mm-hmm. And so when you think you've got an awesome yield, whether it's you're purchasing with a buyer's agent or whether you're purchasing on your own, uh, not all not all buyers agents even apply this due diligence. So, no. you know, when you apply this due diligence to your journey, yes, it'll take longer to find something. Yes, you'll see properties be purchased by others or miss out on some, and that's okay. When it comes to your time to get something, you know that you've isolated anything that's going to increase your days on market, your chance for vendor discounting in the times where the market's good or bad in comparison to other properties in the same suburb. So that was the that was the second component, which was due diligence, why it's important and what to cover. From a, I guess, from a finance point of view, clients coming in, they might be new investors or, you know, second time investors, but they've never used the service of a buyer's agency like Investicit, for example. And a lot of people are drawn to the shiny new, you know, brand new build. Um, and so we do come across a few clients who have, 
you know, gone down that route themselves and gone in for a new build, land and construction. Um, I'm interested to get your take on, because you mentioned one of the points from a due diligence point of view is large scale new developments in surrounding areas. How does that actually impact the investor? Can you explain that point? Yeah, so we did a, a lot of charting on buyer, uh, buyers, um, and when if they if they did go and do purchases where areas had a large building approval percentage in pipeline, how would that correlate with changing prices across hot and cold markets at different thresholds of building approval percentage rates and days on market and vendor discounting? And what we found were that when we start to see higher and higher building approvals as a proportion of incoming stock, so I'll just simplify it even more. If you have you know 100 homes and you have three properties being built or in approval stage, that's 3% of new pipeline over the next year or two, because that 100 homes in the area are now having three new ones being built, which will take it to 103, right? And so we're looking at these percentages of incoming supply, as well as you know, the rate of completion from approval to completions or starts that we're looking at as well in the areas. And all of this stuff coming together, when we see large amounts of new supply kick in, it does start to change those other data points of days on market, vendor discounting, listing inventory, and then, of course, prices. So, yeah, it's just something to think of that a high growth area with lots of building does not necessarily mean a high price growth area. Mm. So it's a high growth region, but may not be high price growth. It has just too many unknown factors uh, of which some areas you see pop off and they sell more and more and more at higher prices each stage that comes out. Then you see other areas that that don't. And so that's just the unknown. There's too much risk in it as your supply percentages increase. And then the risk of you know vacancy rates as well, right? When it comes to, from an investor standpoint. Definitely, definitely a core thing. And so um, the last one is the third and final, number the three, third, number three. Um, is all about regional cities. And this is quite important to bring up in, in today's uh, deep dive of data because regional cities, why this is important is we are starting to see or sense a, you know, that feeling of normal that many people talk about. And with regional cities, many who were against all this or did not want to be believers of all this migration happening are starting to think, oh, well, are they out of trend? You know, are we seeing people come back? Miss the shot kind of thing. Miss the shot. Regional cities are, no, COVID's done now in some people's minds. And, uh, you know, regional cities are coming out of trend for property purchase, right? They're they're not the hot shot that they were in during COVID. Well, yes, obviously there's peak times of movement, but that does not mean by any means that we're seeing change or losing the steam in regional Australia. Long story short, the core thing here is that JLL, this is a very great, good survey, by the way, uh, JLL's Future of Work survey 2022 shows that 45% of employers were not offering any form of hybrid working before COVID, whilst now that number has dropped to only 9%. So it starts at the top level employment. It's very clear that people are still offering this far more as an option. And the adoption rates, whilst maybe not at peak adoption rate in terms of COVID and when it first hit, the adoption rate can still grow over time and still play a core part, especially as more and more options are given. The second thing is regional cities are more affordable 
to locals than capital cities. Now, very important to frame that correctly. Affordable does not just mean cheaper. We have always known regional cities to be cheaper. That's not the thing. But regional cities are more affordable to locals than capital cities. So it means that those living in capital cities versus those living in regional cities, if they look at their own respective markets, even though you know house prices and incomes vary, capital city incomes higher, house prices higher, regional incomes lower, regional prices lower. It's the proportion though. House holds in capital cities are a little bit more stretched for housing in their own market than re- those in regional cities in their own market. So it's still relatively affordable. The last thing is on that affordable piece, we actually looked at uh, the measure of overvalue, undervalue, and this was using income levels. And with regards to income levels, we were looking at how they compare in terms of mortgage repayments now, not just prices. And what we found with uh, the affordability is that relative affordability was much higher in regional cities, the highest in Queensland and South Australia in comparison to our capital cities. And this is using now mortgage repayments as a measure, not just prices. So this benchmark was definitely uh, quite interesting to see. you know, 40% of regional New New South Wales statistical area three locations were considered affordable or undervalued. 50% regional Victoria, 51% regional Queensland, and of course, 88% in regional SA. So uh, very, very affordable there. There are a few more other regions that that I've gone through, but that's just an example. Now, this is the really interesting myth buster. And this is the final point on the regional and capital thinking and whether regional cities are out of trend for property purchases there are actually more job opportunities attracting workers in regional Australia than capital. Isn't that, that interesting? That is very interesting. Do you think it goes back to that JLL, you know, type of hybrid working thing that you mentioned with the whole, you know, 9% of employers not op- offering that option anymore? No, like it's, it's, not just, it's not just that. That plays a key part. But the actual pipeline of jobs was, whether COVID hit or not, mm-hmm. was going to trend upwards for regional Australia anyway, right. based on the projects and local economy pieces going on. Now, it's not just a total jobs, by the way. It's uh, uh, indexed job numbers growth, and it's considering the labor market information portal, the uh, labor, labor market insights is our source. And we looked at the regional job growth versus capital city job growth. There is a surging level of job opportunities in regional Australia, and this will no doubt continue to positively impact their economies and in turn, property markets. Makes sense because when you're talking about Toowoomba, you said 13 something billion in infrastructure investment. Yeah, so that's just one, obviously that's going to create some jobs. Right there. Yeah, definitely. And and the final piece here, which um is just that the fact that supply levels are still declining in regional Australia. So we looked at an interesting data point, and it was basically the total number of existing for sale listings versus population growth. And we kind of created this whole listings per capita trend. And listings for sale is actually and also listing per capita is increasing in capital cities, whereas it's decreasing in regional cities. So it does mean that we're seeing regional cities remain more undersupplied 
and have lower levels of you know supply with trending down in comparison to some of our capital cities which are actually trending up on listings per capita so this just kind of considers now both the population aspect and listings overall and this is where we're definitely seeing that shortage in regional australia for listings in comparison even when you think of population movements as well which is greater in our capitals but obviously with the migration now coming back that will improve in our capitals however migrants don't come back and just immediately buy property so that's all kind of what we're seeing that the, the trend is no longer this whole thing of oh it must now reverse because covid's not the same it was always trending up covid gave it the, the huge explosion that happened and that obviously structurally changed things that jll future work survey is a great example, mm -hmm. uh, but we are moving into many regional cities still having stronger local economies relative to their population size. Very key concept there. Mm -hmm. More job opportunities. Yeah, relativity. It's and low listings to capita in terms of the trend. So that's our insights in terms of three core insights I thought we'd jump on and share today, Lee, and really appreciate you also sharing all the finance trends today. And um, appreciate it. Yeah, it's I love, a, that. I love that you guys, um, like you mentioned earlier, you guys are doing this weekly uh, under your news and insights section on Investigate, right? Yeah. On the website. So if you guys want to actually go and read it back on that and more in depth with the key data points that Arjun covered off today, you can go on to investigate.com.au and then click on the property market research area uh, button, I should say, and under news and insights. There's no. also access to the white papers there, which is all free content, which is crazy. It's been a it's been a long episode, hasn't it, today? And uh, I know we could have turned this into multiple episodes, but that's just not us. We just love, you know, shaking and baking it and dropping <laughs> as much knowledge bombs as we can for everyone here. And I honestly couldn't do this without the Investigate Research team who support me day in, day out and putting this content together. And as a team, we've um, definitely got some exciting pieces to come. But if you'd like that, what I reminded in the earlier part of the episode, just remember to drop Nikita at investorkit.com.au an email. And sorry, Nikita, for the bombardment you're about to get. Um, and yeah, market categorization. We've got our core document and video to explain how to interpret it. So you can you know, look at trying to do your research and align them to different cycle points. And if you'd like professional support on that, obviously, investorkit.com.au is our buyer's agency. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's it from us at the Property Notes. Over and out. Thank you. Game over.